Hey guys, welcome to The Nursing Co-op. I am so excited that you're here. On this podcast, our goal is to build your confidence, expand your knowledge, and create a supportive, cooperative community for nurses, one nurse at a time. My name's Ashley. I'm a registered nurse on a mission to empower nurses to build meaningful careers and change nursing culture along the way. In our time together, I hope to share my experiences, provide you with resources, and create a space where you can find your footing as a nurse without judgment. We will unravel nursing topics and make connections with amazing guests to give you all of the tools that you need to build an incredible life and career. I believe that it takes a village to build a strong nurse. We are your village. This is The Nursing Co-op. What's up, guys? Welcome back to The Nursing Co-op. I'm really excited that you guys are here for today's episode because we are doing kind of a throwback back to an older style of episode that I did often when I was in the ICU. So we are doing a patient case today. So it's a little bit different than when I was in the ICU, but you guys always seem to like these episodes because it gave you a little bit of a glimpse into a day in the life in that specific area, as well as a peek into some of those critical thinking and time management skills that are necessary. And I think that that is universal wherever you are in nursing. I don't, I couldn't really do these while I was in the methadone clinic only because I didn't see patients for an extended period of time. I saw patients really quickly um, in close succession. So I really didn't have enough time with each one to really talk to you guys about problems I might've been intervening with. But in this procedural area, I I initially went into this thinking I couldn't do patient cases because I don't have the same patient all day, but I do tend to have patients for at least a couple hours or more. So I found that I was, in my practice, I was doing things that would be helpful for you guys that I kind of had overlooked because I'm in a procedural area. So I thought I would bring that to the table today, give you a little bit of background, not quite like it was in the ICU where I would get full report and share that with you guys and talk about all of the things I was thinking about. But this is a more abbreviated version that I think will still be helpful for you because sometimes you have to act pretty quickly even if you don't yet know a lot about your patients. And for those of you guys who are in places like the ER or on floors that you have a lot of turnover in, this is the type of thing that you guys will also deal with. So I thought it'd be relatable and a really great thing to talk about. And of course, if you guys are interested in procedural nursing, this is going to give you a little bit of a window into what a case might look like. So that helps as well if you're interested in this type of nursing. Okay, so let's just dive in. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the patient that I had and the procedure that we were doing, and then we'll dive into some nursing considerations and interventions that I found myself doing in this specific case So for our purposes today, we will just call this patient Jane Doe since it's simple, and I promise you that's not her actual name. (laughs) So for Jane, she came in for a cerebral angiogram. So this procedure looks at the vessels that lead to the brain and are in the brain to look for blockages, aneurysms, whatever it is specific for that patient, Um, but it's just about the pictures. It gives us a good map, mapping or baseline, or we get to just look at the vessels if this is a post-procedural thing. So this is about pictures versus sometimes we are doing interventions in the brain, either embolizations or thrombectomies. It depends on the patient's case, but those are more intensive procedures versus 
take just taking the pictures. But there are certainly risks that go along with this procedure, of course, like anything else. We start by going through usually the femoral artery. Sometimes we go in radially, but usually we go femoral and snake wire, then catheter up to the carotid arteries up into the brain and take pictures and inge- by injecting IV dye. So that is essentially what's going on. Um, we use different types of angles for the cameras and scanning. Sometimes we do 3D mapping. There's all sorts of different types of pictures we can take. But a cerebral angiogram is really about the pictures and getting a good look at the vessels of the brain. So specifically for this patient case, Jane Doe came in with a history of clotting issues. So she had a past history of DVTs. She's had a PE before. Um, So she's had multiple issues with clotting, also a family history of clotting. And she also has a significant cardiac history where she's had some unstable rhythm. So she's been going into SVT before. She has had AFib in the past. So she's got some cardiac history as, as well. Still pretty young but definitely high risk. She is here today because we are doing follow-up scans after she had a right vertebral artery aneurysm embolization. So that is a specific vessel in the brain. She had an aneurysm that was coming off of that vessel and came in for a procedure where we put embolization materials into that aneurysm to stop blood from flowing into it and protect it. So now she is coming back for us to take some good pictures and make sure that the blood flow in that vessel still looks good and that there is no residual filling of that aneurysm after she had the embolization. So this is just for pictures after she's had a procedure in the past whatever amount of months. Depends on the patient. But so she had hers a few months ago and is now coming back for some scans to see if there's any residual filling of that aneurysm. So that's a little bit of background about Miss Jane Doe. I'm not going to go crazy into every detail of how this case plays out. If you are interested in hearing more about these specific cases, I'm happy to share that. So reach out to me if you want to hear those sorts of things, but I'm not going to fill this episode full of all those details because it could take a while just to explain what's going on. But essentially, we get this patient, we meet with the doctor, make sure we're all on the same page, do a timeout. The patient is rolled into the room. We have all the equipment ready. We get the patient on the table and prep her for this actual procedure. So the scrub techs will scrub in and start to build the sterile field over her. So there's a big sterile drape that goes over her. They have their whole sterile table that they have all their equipment on. And my job as the nurse is to sedate and care for this patient, watch her vitals, all the nursey things. <laughs> so that is my role here. Sometimes if there is an um, intervention happening, so if we are doing an embolization, a lot of times that is done with general anesthesia. But the just for pictures, that's usually done just with the nurse doing procedural sedation. So that is my role in this. And I'm watching her vitals and intervening intervening as needed as we go through this case. The key with sedation when it comes to these types of procedures that I have to consider every time I'm in these is you do not want to over sedate these patients specifically because sometimes we need them to follow instructions in these procedures like hold their breath or you know if they're moving around a lot we need them to understand when we tell them not to move so much because we're working in their brain it's very high risk um, and movement adds extra risk to that. 
So they need to be comfortable, but not overly sedated because they are at higher risk. Because we're working in the brain, we need to be able to do neuro examinations or ask them to follow directions as we go throughout the case. So that is a special consideration that I have to think of throughout these cases to make sure that I'm not over sedating the patient. Just like in the cardiac side, I typically will use fentanyl and Versed to sedate my patients. Occasionally, you'll sprinkle on a little Benadryl. Sometimes that works really well for younger patients. This patient was younger, so I did actually use Benadryl for her. And it works really nicely to keep people comfortable without adding as much respiratory depression that you sometimes get with things like fentanyl and Versed. So it can be a nice addition to your typical procedural drug, procedural sedation drugs that can over sedate the patient pretty easily. So after sedating, after the patient is draped sterilely, the, the doctor will come in and start the procedure. Now with this specific patient, I'm going to talk about three different events that happened that I had to consider and I had to intervene on that are significant to any nurse. So three things happened. The first had to do with her heart rate, second had to do with her oxygen level, and third had to do with her blood pressure. So ABCs, classic nursing. This these are things that you can consider regardless of where you are in nursing. So after we had started the procedure, I had given the patient medication to help her feel more comfortable. I'd given her a little bit of fentanyl and versed she was comfortable but still somewhat awake. She wasn't snoring totally out or not breathing or anything like that, just comfortable. And I noticed that at the start of the procedure, before I had given her any medication, her heart rate was in the one teens. That's where she came in at. And if you remember, when we looked at her history, she had a history of SVT. So she has a history of a faster heart rate And so she started out there. I gave her some medication to make her more comfortable. And at this point, as the procedure has started, I look at the monitor and her heart rate is in the 60s. So that is a huge jump, huge, huge drop in her heart rate, which is significant. So the first thing that I want to consider there is why did that happen? Now, of course, you might look at it and think, okay, well, she's still in normal sinus. No big deal. She we just slowed her heart rate down. That's good. But why did that happen? Is it going to continue to lower? Is it going to continue to drop? If a patient is used to a heart rate in the low hundreds, then it's significant when that heart rate drops 50, 40, 50 points down to the 60s. That's not normal for that patient. So their circulation is different than it might normally be. So in this case, in this setting, there were a few things that I did when I saw this change in heart rate. Um, First thing is, In my setting, I pulled emergency meds out. Some nurses may not normally do this. I am still new in this setting and I'm on my own in this room. And so I like to be prepared if I am concerned that things may turn south. I'd rather have everything out and not have to use it and put it back than not have it out and have to panic and try and get into a Pyxis when her heart rate's then in the 20s or something like that. So I pulled out all of my emergency meds. In the setting of the cath lab, we usually pull out atropine, epinephrine, and phenylephrine. So I pulled out those three medications and I had them ready. They just sat on the counter. I didn't have to use them. But when my patient's heart rate drops that much, I want to be ready in case it continues to do so. So I grabbed my emergency meds. The second thing I did is considered how much sedation that I had given because that can also drop heart rate. Um, So in this case, I hadn't given very much, 
but I knew that she may be sensitive to it at that point. So if her heart rate dropped that much, if it has anything to do with the sedation, it's because she's very sensitive to it. Every patient's different in how they tolerate sedation. Some patients, you can barely sedate them. You're giving them more and more meds and you're like, how are you not asleep yet? Other patients, you give them almost nothing and they stop breathing. So it's a fine line that you're that you're working with. So I'm considering how much sedation that I gave that patient and I'm holding off on giving her any more because of this significant change in her vital signs. And lastly, in this case, I'm considering what is happening in the procedure at that point to make sure that there's nothing going on that they're doing that changed her heart rate. So especially in cardiac cases, there are a lot of things that they're doing with the, their wires and their catheters that can change the patient's heart rate really fast. So that's something to consider. In this case, you can always consider things like a vagal, like if the patient vagaled, their heart rate might drop. There are all sorts of things that could happen in this type of procedure that may impact a patient's heart rate. So I'm looking at where they are in their procedure. Have they inserted any catheters yet? Did, you know, they puncture the artery and now she's having a lot of blood loss or something like that and they are having a hard time controlling it. All of those things can change heart rate as well. So I would consider where they are in their procedure. In this case, I believe that it had something to do with the sedation because I didn't give her any more and that problem did not worsen. It just stayed about the same. So she probably, maybe she was a little bit anxious before the procedure. That's also something to think about. How did they come in versus how are they now? If the patient came in very nervous about the procedure, it's likely that their heart rate's going to be higher. So once they're calm and I've given them some medication to calm them down, their heart rate might be lower and more stable. So in this case, I think that's what happened for this patient. But a significant change in vitals is always something to pay attention to, regardless of if there's a simple reason why you should identify that reason, but always think about it. It's not normal, even if the vital signs look normal. If there's a big change for a patient and you didn't do anything that you can think of to, to cause that, then it's something to pay attention to. So even if you're on the floor, for example, you have a patient who's always in like the 180s for their blood pressure for their systolic blood pressure is always in the 180s or something like that. And suddenly their heart, their their blood pressure is in the 120s. Oh, great. That, that looks totally normal. But did you do anything to lower their blood pressure or are they suddenly having a significant drop in their blood pressure? So think about those things when you're with your patients, even if their vital signs look normal, is it normal for the patient? The other thing to always consider with any of these things that I'm going to talk about, especially if they have anything to do with ABCs, is... Be ready for things to go wrong. Now, I don't want you to always be negative and think that things are going to all be doomed and your patients are all going to die or anything like that. But it's always good to think about what could go wrong because then you're prepared for those things so that if anything goes wrong, you already thought about how this would play out. So especially in a procedural setting or an emergency or acute care setting, think about how your patient may quickly decline and what you'll do about it. That is going to help put you ahead if anything does go wrong. And if not, great, you're just prepared. The second thing that happened for this patient during this procedure is that her on her SpO2 monitor, I noticed that she was her O2 level was dropping. So she went from, you know, high 90s to now she's in the high 80s. So I'm not just going to ignore that. It's nothing to panic about. With any of these things, you don't always have to just jump into panic mode or emergency mode. But just think about why something's happening. 
and think about why something's happening before you go to the doctor, before you ask for some sort of intervention, or before you just automatically turn up the oxygen or give a blood pressure med or give a heart rate medication. Before you jump to those more extreme interventions, think about what you can do that's very simple and think about why something might be happening before you jump to an intervention. So in the case of her SpO2 monitor reading in, you know, 87% or something like that, there are a number of things that go through my head. I don't just immediately go and turn up the oxygen and make her wake up and take some deep breaths. First thing I think about is where is that monitor? Where is the SpO2 monitor? Those are notoriously unreliable depending on where they are and if the connection's good. Do they have nail polish on? Are, you know, do they have really poor circulation in their fingers? There's all sorts of reasons why the the SpO2 monitor isn't reading well. So where is it? And if you can, look at the waveform for that device. Because if you have this wonky waveform where there's barely a waveform or it's all over the place, patients moving, you're not actually getting an accurate reading. So it's not something to just jump to an intervention about. But it is something to consider, like maybe I should put the SpO2 monitor on their ear. You know, maybe they have really poor circulation on their fingers or their fingernails are painted bright red and I'm really not getting a reading. Those are things that you can do without having to talk to a doctor, but without having to get an order panicking. Where is your SpO2 monitor? Is it reading well? And can you move it to somewhere else to see if you have a different reading? Next thing I'll consider if they have, if I have them on oxygen, which I always do when I'm sedating a patient, we put them all on oxygen. Um, You may not have this on the floor if your patient's not on oxygen. This isn't something you always have to worry about. But is that oxygen actually in her nose? Is it or if it's a mask, is it on her face? Is there a good seal? In this case, I had to look at the uh, nasal cannula and maybe one of the little spouts is outside of a nostril. Maybe it's fallen down on her upper lip and it's no longer even in her nose. Or is she just breathing through her mouth and she's not even breathing through her nose because she's sleeping because I gave her some sedation medication. And so she's not even really getting that much oxygen from her nose. So there are a number of things I can do if that's the case. Fix where the oxygen is, make sure that it's in her nose properly. Or if she is breathing through her mouth, you can always put that nasal cannula into somebody's mouth. I know it's a little, it sounds a little weird, but that's totally fine to do. The other trick is if you have a nasal cannula and your patient's kind of mouth breathing, but also kind of breathing through their nose or whatever, you can throw a mask on on them and it kind of acts like a uh, oxygen mask in the sense that it keeps that oxygen in their general face area. So that can work too to help your patient if you're trying not to wake them or if they're just if you're just having a hard time with keeping a stable O2 level with your nasal cannula. You may also need to escalate. You may need to try a mask. You may need to increase their oxygen level. So first consider the basic things that you can do. Is their SpO2 monitor even working well? Is the the nasal cannula or whatever device you're using actually on properly? And then if you need to, if they're still dropping, then you may need to increase the oxygen. You may need to try a higher level oxygen device. You may need to do a jaw thrust or wake your patient up or take out those pillows that are craning their neck so that it's kind of blocking their airway. There's all sorts of interventions you can do if you need to, but always try and turn to the least invasive method that you can first before you jump to more invasive or more extreme interventions. 
The other thing in my case to consider, and it could be for you if you're giving any pain medication or any sort of sedation medication, is did you over sedate? That doesn't mean that you necessarily did anything wrong. You didn't, that's not a medication error. Some patients, like I said, are more sensitive to these things or they need an adjustment or you just have to play around and learn what's good for this patient. Or if you're in a procedural area, you usually, I like to start light because I can always add more, can't take it away once I give it. So are they over sedated and maybe they're not breathing on their own anymore or they've, they're not ha- get, taking good breaths, they're airway isn't open because they're snoring. In that case, I'm not going to give any more sedation. And I'm also going to intervene by doing taking that pillow out so they're flat or doing a jaw thrust, maybe just trying to rub their forehead and wake them up a little bit, even though I don't normally want to wake them because I want them to stay comfortable. But if there's an issue with the ABCs, I'm going to wake them. And I don't really care if that's uncomfortable. I would rather them be breathing. So that's another thing to consider if you're in the ICU or if you've given a pain medication, so if you come in and your patient's oxygen is dropping and you just gave them morphine, it might be related to that morphine. So just consider those things. For this patient, I later found out that she has Raynaud, so she has really poor circulation in her fingers. So we ended up just putting an ear clip on her and got a great rating and it was no problem at all. The last thing that happened for this patient is that she had a significant change in her blood pressure during the case. So when she started the case, her blood pressure was in the 120s and another reading came up and ended up being in the 170s and then the 180s. So there are a number of things to consider when this happens as well. Same thing. First thing that I like to think about whenever I have a question about my blood pressure is where is the cuff if that's what you're going off of. If you have an A-line, where is your transducer? So that has a significant impact on your, on their blood pressure reading. So if the blood pressure cuffs on their leg, it's probably going to be very different than what you get on their arm. So consider where your cuff is. Typically, if you put it on somewhere like their leg, the further away from their heart, the blood pressure ends up usually being higher versus if it's on their arm, it ends up being lower. So just consider where their cuff is. And the first thing, if you get a weird reading wherever you are on your blood pressure cuff, the first thing to do is always recheck because you may get, it could have been their arm was bent or they moved during it. There are all sorts of factors that can impact the accuracy of a blood pressure reading. We rely on these machines so much, but they're not always accurate. So first thing, get a recheck. If it's the same, then maybe consider what you could look at. So if the cuff's on their leg, maybe can we move it to their arm and see if that reading is different? If you also have an A-line or a sheet that you're getting a blood pressure reading through, what is that reading versus what you're getting on your cuff? Do they correlate? Are they very different? Which one is the most accurate? Again, if you have just an A-line, where is that transducer? Is it at the phlebostatic access where it's supposed to be, or is it on the floor where it's going to totally change your blood pressure? Consider all of these things before you intervene any further. The next thing to consider is what medications you've given and very recently. So in the case of a procedure, I consider what the doctor may have given through the sheath. You know, a lot of times they are giving vasodilators. So I usually worry a lot more about the blood pressure dropping, but they could give other medications that could raise the blood pressure. Or I may have given a medication that could raise the blood pressure if the doctor instructed me to give something specific. You can also consider what 
is happening to the patient. What are they doing? What are you doing in that moment? So in my case, when I think about a procedure, is the doctor doing something that's painful for my patient? Or is it because, you know, we just injected dye into one of the arteries on the that are that feed like the side of the head and they just felt this weird very warm sensation through their head or they got a headache obviously their blood pressure might increase if they are in pain so are they in pain are they under sedated if they're in the ICU and they're you know on a ventilator and paralyzed or something like that and their blood pressure suddenly increases they might be under sedated which is a terrifying experience So consider their sedation level, consider the medications you gave, consider where your cuff is and whether it's in an accurate place. Always recheck it. So those are the first few things to do. And then you can move forward with interventions if you need to. And this is the same story if your blood pressure drops. So again, with all of these things, consider these simple things that you can do to determine whether that blood pressure reading is even accurate or what's going on with your patient before you intervene. So if you get a low reading, get a recheck. Where is the cuff? Where's the transducer? Is it impacting that blood pressure reading? Is your patient, did they just get a bolus of something that dropped their blood pressure? Are they dry? There's all sorts of reasons why blood pressure can decrease or increase that you can intervene on without having to panic or call the doctor. So there are all sorts of little things. I can do an episode on that as well just to give you guys a few tricks with blood pressure because that is always that's always something that everyone deals with. Any nurse deals with changes in blood pressure and has to intervene on them or consider what to do if there's a change. But the first thing to always consider are the least invasive mechanisms. So is your cuff in a weird place? Is it, did it get detached when you turn the patient? There's all sorts of things that get you weird readings or inaccurate readings on your blood pressure. And then, so for my case, my patient's blood pressure increased, and but their, their heart rate earlier had decreased. So I have to consider, are they in pain? And is it safe for me to give them more sedation for the pain if I'm also worried about other vital signs changing in the opposite direction? So I have to consider, or and I know that she's really sensitive to the sedation, so do I want to give more? The other thing to consider when you're dealing with doctors, especially if you're in a setting like me or if you're in a setting where doctors kind of just throw out an order and don't even see the patient, you are the advocate for that patient. So a lot of times I'm in a procedure the patient, I don't know, moves a pinky finger and the doctor panics and says, give them more sedation because they're very worried about their, their procedure. They want to make sure that they're doing that safely and they want to make sure that they're not hurting the patient in the sense that they don't want them to move while a catheter is in their brain. So they're very worried about them moving. But as the nurse, we are the ones who are thinking about the big picture for a patient. So always consider what else is going on, because even though we rely on the doctors to give us the orders, they aren't always thinking about the big picture. So that's your role. So always think about the big picture for your patient. For example, another case that we could always talk about, but I had a patient who had a history of heart failure. And during a case, his blood pressure kept going down. The the doctor kept wanting me to give more and more sedation to this patient, but had a history of heart failure. So the easiest thing that I can do when blood pressure drops is open up my fluids because that's an easy thing. I don't have to give emergency meds or anything like that because that's a little bit harder for me to access and something I need a more specific order for. So I'm opening up fluids, but I'm also considering 
their heart failure. I don't want to give them too much. So I'm constantly reminding the doctor, hey, I've given this much fluid. They have a history of heart failure. Are you sure you want me to give that extra sedation? Are you sure you want me to do this? Oh, you you want me to give this contrast or this medication? Also, they have a history of you know, chronic kidney disease and they get dialysis frequently. Do you sure you want me to give that? These are the things that we have to think about that the doctors aren't always thinking about because sometimes they're in a narrow-minded path because they're so focused on what they have to do. So for these doctors that I work with, they're really focused on their procedure, which is good. They need to be. But it's up to me to remind them of the big picture for every patient because they see a lot of patients. This is my patient. So I know I know the patient and I can advocate for them. So always consider that in your role as a nurse is that sometimes the doctor is going to throw out an order to you that might not make sense. It is totally within your right to question those things or ask someone. If you are a newer nurse and you get a doc, an order that doesn't make sense to you, just verify. Go talk to your charge. Hey, Dr. So-and-so just told me to push, you know, 2.5 in metoprolol. Does that make sense? Here's what my patient's doing. They can always say, oh yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. Just make sure you push it slowly. Or they might say, oh my God, that makes no sense. That's that's going to bottom out their heart rate or whatever. That's why it's always good to use your team. So advocate for your patient, question things, and don't just, you are not just there to take orders. All right, guys. So I just wanted to talk about a few things that we can keep in mind throughout our week, some interventions. So this is not like a full-on patient case like I used to do where you had all kinds of background, but I still think that this sort of conversation is helpful because these are things that we all deal with. Blood pressure, heart rate, oxygen, those are the those are the base of what we do. Um, and so I think it's always helpful to chat about. I hope that this episode was helpful for you. Um, if you have any questions about procedural nursing or if you have questions about these topics and want to hear more about how to how to intervene as a nurse, always let me know. I'm always happy to hear from you guys. Like it it literally brings me the most joy when you when you all shoot me a message on Instagram or if you comment or leave a review, those things are what fuel me for this. I, You guys are why I do this. So I hope that I can continue to give you guys helpful content and answer your questions as much as I can and connect with you as much as I can. That is what I'm here for. So I always love it. If, if you have a friend who you think this episode might be helpful for, sharing it with them is always amazing as well. I love you guys. I hope that you're having a really great week. I know that some of you are going through some difficult times in your journey as a nurse. And if you are, know that I'm rooting for you and you can always turn to me. I'm always happy to talk to you guys, to hear what you're going through, to help you in any way that I can, to connect you with resources, whatever I can do. That is what I feel my mission in life is, is to help nurses. So I hope you guys have a great week and I will see you next time. Thank you so much for spending some time with me and our community in the nursing co-op. If you liked this episode and found some value in the content, please share it with any and all of your nursing friends on social media and tag me at Ashley underscore nursing co-op so that I can thank you personally. That way we can continue to build this community and change nursing culture for the better. I can't wait to see what we create. I will see you next week, but until then, happy nursing.